Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's innovative hidden screen folds away when closed, keeping it clean while bringing in a ton more sun. Choose 0% financing for 72 months or a free upgrade to the hidden screen on our 250 series. Visit PellaWI.com today. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. I was actually glad for Monday to roll around because I need to rest a little bit. I mean, this is one of those busy periods of time. Like over the last weekend, it was, um, as as I said, I went to the Brewers game on Friday, which was a dog of a game. But, you know, it was still went to the game, had fun with that. And Saturday, we had some commitments with with an advertiser, talk a little bit more about that later, and played golf and then went to a a party for for Bob Babish down at Discovery World, which is great. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at JeffWagner620. I got a couple pictures from the event, including my, my, my lovely and beautiful wife. She, I'm telling you, she had her dancing shoes on there is no question about that and as as we all know there, there's one thing you know like the ladies the the band starts playing the ladies are out on the dance floor rocking out and the guys just kind of want to sit down but there was none of that saturday night so we had we all had our dancing shoes on and then you know sunday it's the time of graduation parties and stuff and we had that coming up went to a graduation party and my granddaughter fran's granddaughter graduates from high school on friday so we've got all sorts of festivities with that it is that busy season so it's good to get back to work and kind of take a a deep breath lots of stuff and this is one of those programs that i know when you listen to all three hours of the show by the end of the show you will have agreed with me on some things and i will have irritated you on others i guarantee this is one of those shows that is shaping up that way and so just buckle your seat belts let us start with a couple comments about this awful Situation of what happened up in, in Juneau County, where you have re- retired d- Judge John Raymer, who was murdered late last week. What it appears happened is that this psycho, and there's no other way to describe it, his name is Douglas Udy, 56-year-old guy who had been sentenced to prison by the, the judge back in like 2005, had been sentenced to six years in prison on a burglary charge. Apparently, um, what, what happened is he was holding a grudge. He's a nutcase. He had a, a hit list containing names ranging from Tony Evers and Gretchen Whitmer, who's the governor of uh, Michigan, to Republican Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, to the name of a guy who's running for a sheriff in some other county. So he had this whole list of, of grievances, and apparently he decided to act out on the retired judge, and it looks like he broke into the home, killed the judge, ended up in a, a the former judge, ended up in a standoff, and then ultimately when the police were getting ready to storm the former judge's house where the guy was holed up. He tried to kill himself and screwed that up. So now he's in custody. But it's a terrible sort of situation. But what really, I guess, hit home to me is is this is the thing that is in the back of the mind of anybody who's ever been a judge, 
who's ever worked as a prosecutor, who's ever worked in law enforcement, that someday, somehow, somebody from your past, either distant or recent, is is going to be harboring a grudge and is going to come back and try to seek some sort of vengeance. Now, thankfully, that, that almost never happens. And my experience, going back from when I was a prosecutor, my experience was with the defendants, when they'd get upset, it was interesting because they typically weren't upset with the prosecutors because the prosecutors, they realized they're, they're just doing their job. And they weren't really generally upset with the judges because they recognized the judges were doing their job. And they weren't really upset with the police officers because the police officers were doing their job. And at the end of the day, they were guilty. You know, the people, they knew what they did. They knew that they were guilty. So it was interesting because what I always found is the defendants, when they were most upset, all right, if, if they're not upset with the judge or the prosecutors or the cops, who are they most upset with? Well, in many cases, it was their own lawyers because there was this sort of attitude that you would pick up. That, And again, forgetting the fact that the defendants are guilty as you know what, the idea was if I had a better lawyer, if my lawyer, forget the fact that you're guilty, if my lawyer was better than the prosecutor, I wouldn't have gotten convicted in the first place. They should have been able to get me out. And then you couple that with the fact that, I don't know if it's this case anymore, but back back in the 80s and stuff when there was all this drug money that was around and things like that, now it, it's gotten much, much, much more difficult for defense attorneys to uh, accept proceeds of criminal activity as as their fees. But th- but there was a time where, you know, th- there was a little bit of that that w- was going on and it wasn't it wasn't prohibited as long as you didn't know directly where it came from, so you just didn't ask. But there was th- this sometimes <clears throat> especially when I started practicing law, there was this issue that would go on where th- the defense attorneys in order to get the business and in order to get the money would promise or lead the defendants to believe that hey, you 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 pay my my fees. You give me this money that I'm asking for, and I will get you a good result. Now they wouldn't exactly say that, but they would imply it. And so a, a lot of times, what you'd have is these defendants who paid all this money, and they had a certain expectation. And then again, there's only so much you can do if you've got a client who's guilty as you know what. So a lot of times, I, I actually found the defendants were more upset at their their attorneys than they were at at probably anybody else in in the system and i mean i can remember a couple occasions where it was very very clear that they were that they then once they get sent off to prison you know they want to call you up and they want to implicate their attorneys and things like that so it it thankfully what happened to the judge the horrible thing that happened to the retired judge the other day it's something that's in the back of of everybody in law enforcement's minds Thankfully, it it doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, it certainly gets people's attention. And this, I think it's appropriately getting, you know, national attention. And it's why it's one of the things, like I say, that's always in the back of the minds of anybody who gets into law enforcement, where especially you're you're involved in, you know, the prosecution of people and sending people to, to prison for a number of years. Sometimes you have folks who aren't mentally balanced to hold grudges, and that appears to be what happened here. All right, when we come back, Donald Trump just refuses to go away, quietly or otherwise. I want to share his latest tweet with you, and then we will discuss. 
Okay, let us go where angels fear to tread. Donald Trump refuses to go away. Now, it hasn't been a great stretch of time for former President Trump. You've got the January 6th committee, which is going to have a prime time hearing complete with all the bells and whistles, and they're going to do everything they can to make it look like he was the architect of the riot at the Capitol on on January 6th. So he's not looking very good for that. He's been endorsing various candidates with mixed results. Um, for example, a very high profile situations in Georgia, he, he went out on a limb trying to defeat the governor of Georgia, who he partially blames for his defeat in the 2020 presidential election, going after the Republican secretary of state who refused Trump's demands in the phone call to find 13,000 votes or whatever that number was. So he endorsed their opponents that that went down in flames. He's had some arguable victories. He endorsed. Uh, Dr. Oz, the, the TV doctor who's running for the Senate in Pennsylvania, who ended up winning ultimately by about 900 votes. The, his challengers conceded, and, and that's out of like 1.2 million casts. And I, I think you can argue that maybe the Trump endorsement kind of moved the needle in that case. So it, it's been it's been very much a, a mixed bag. But a lot of people are suggesting that, that Donald Trump is close to announcing that he's going to, again, run for president this time in 2024. Why would he make an announcement early? Well, it's because there's other people that are out there um, who are getting lots of attention, including probably primarily Ron DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida, who won a, a straw poll at a conservative meeting over the weekend in Colorado. So anyhow, it, it's it's been sort of a mixed bag of things for Donald Trump. Paul Ryan, former congressman from the uh, from Wisconsin, of course, former Speaker of the House, former vice presidential candidate with Mitt Romney back in 2012. Um, Ryan does an interview with Newsweek, and in the interview with Newsweek, he says that there were more Republicans who were in support of impeaching Donald Trump after the January 6th incident. But but a lot of them just didn't have the courage to do it. And that 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 that's what he says. And and actually, my guess is he's speaking the truth. So in response to that, Donald Trump lashes out. So yesterday, this is the tweet that he sent out. I will read it in its entirety. Did anyone notice that Fox News went lame? Parens bad exclamation point close parens when weak rhino Paul Ryan who is despised in the great state of Wisconsin for being a, quote, pathetic loser, end quote, went on the Fox board. That's the board of Fox News. They won't even talk about an obviously rigged, capital R and rigged, 2020 presidential election, not even a mention. That's why our country is going to hell, all capitals, H-E-L-L. Elections have consequences. Get Ryan off your board and report the news as it should be reported and stop taking negative ads from the perverts and others. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Hmm. There is a lot to break down in that particular tweet. Fox News going lame, his phrase, when weak rhino Paul Ryan. Hmm. I, I you know, I've, I've known Paul Ryan since he first ran for Congress and I'm not I'm not sure that anybody would really consider Paul Ryan to be a rhino who is despised in the great state of Wisconsin for being a pathetic loser. 
All right. Well, again, I don't know that that's the way that too many people in Wisconsin think of of Paul Ryan as a pathetic loser. And they went on the Fox board and then, you know, um, get Ryan off the board, report the news has been reported. They won't even talk about the obviously rigged 2020 presidential election. And then the stuff, negative ads from the perverts and others. I have no idea what he's talking about, but he doesn't have the time anyways. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You know what? It's time for somebody just to say this. He needs to go away. Donald Trump just needs to go away. He doesn't have to go away mad, but he has to just go away. This kind of stuff does not help elect Republicans in 2022. It doesn't help elect Republicans in 2024. Donald Trump is unelectable in 2024. And if he runs for president and somehow gets the Republican nomination in 2024, he guarantees that whoever it is that is running as a Democrat, probably not Joe Biden, but somebody else, is is going to win because... Regardless of how you look at how things you know went during the four years of Trump's term, his behavior afterwards, the unwillingness to move on from the 2020 election, his involvement, whatever you believe it was in the riots in Jan- on January 6th, I-, I think it's rendered him completely and totally unelectable. And he lost in 2020. Why is there any reason to believe that he could win in 2024? And stuff like this, where you lash out at anyone, Anyone who dares to question his weird version of events, to me, it is not constructive, and all it does is make it more difficult for Republicans to win elections. Did anyone notice that Fox News went lame, bad, when weak rhino Paul Ryan, who is despised in the great state of Wisconsin for being a pathetic loser, went on the Fox board, etc., etc., etc.? Sorry, I don't think Paul Ryan is despised in this state. I don't think anybody thinks of him as being a pathetic loser. Matter of fact, Paul Ryan is one of those guys that when he walks into a room and he starts talking politics and he starts talking financial things, Paul Ryan is the smartest guy in the room. And I will tell you, I have been in those rooms. One of the other things is Paul Ryan, one of his beauties is even though he's the smartest guy in the room, he doesn't carry himself that way. But let's tee this up. I, I, did, I admit I, I've never been a fan of Donald Trump. I, I, I appreciate some of the stuff that happened over the course of the last couple years. And if you say, hey, from a policy perspective, were things better during the Trump administration than they've been in the Biden administration? Absolutely. No question about it. The Biden presidency has been a disaster. It is Jimmy Carter all over again. But having said that, Donald Trump is not the messenger to come back with in 2024. And it's stuff like this that demonstrates it. 855-616-1620. Don't you just want him to kind of go away? Like I say, doesn't have to go away mad, but just it's time to move on, isn't it? 855-616-1620, we discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So Donald Trump goes off on Paul Ryan over the weekend because Paul Ryan says what I think is true, that there's a lot of Republicans who would have probably voted to impeach him after January 6, 2020, but he's, Ryan says they just didn't have the guts to do it. Now, I don't know if guts is the right word, but I think there were a lot of people who were just appalled but just didn't want to go down this route. So now Ryan is a pathetic loser who's despised in the state of Wisconsin. 
Really? 855-616-1620. Jeff, all lies. This is what Donald Trump does. Ryan is not looked at as a loser in Wisconsin, and he's not despised. No, I don't think he is either. Let's start with Phil. Phil, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, Used to to be until recently a neighbor of Paul's in a predominantly uh, Democratic neighborhood. And and even the folks that were so politically, uh, diametrically opposed to Paul liked him. He's the first guy to volunteer to get something for a block party, uh, he and his family, They're just gracious people. He's too nice to be in politics, especially the kind of politics that Trump is uh, espousing these days. Yeah, and I mean, again, and I think, I mean, you, you look at Paul Ryan's uh, accomplishments. I mean, he, he was the, you know, Speaker of the House, but before that, he ran the Ways and Means Committee. I don't think that there's anybody in the country who understands budgeting better than, than Paul Ryan did. And, and, and you can disagree with him on certain things, but despised in Wisconsin and a loser and stuff like that. Donald Trump, just go away. You know, just, just really go yeah, away. He needs to. He's, he's going to ruin the, uh, ruin the party he's a bully is what he is yes thanks for calling look and i understand that and and i'm getting some text from people who are saying well you know don't you understand you know that the country was in much better shape when he was the president yeah i i I understand I, i i appreciate some of the trump policies but can't we be done with the bullying, with this this lashing out, with the inability to accept that the 2020 election didn't go his way? This obsession with 2020, when we should be looking at 20, when Republicans should be looking at 2022 and 2024, this is a recipe for electoral failure. And Trump's refusal to recognize that you need to move on and obsessing with Every little slight like this, what that is, is for every time Trump sends out a tweet like this, this is another vote for Joe Biden. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I admit that the last couple of days just sort of pushed me over the edge. I have, I, I appreciate and have defended a lot of the Donald Trump policies when, when he was in office. I think his behavior after the election in refusing to accept the results of it and leading up to what happened on January 6th has, has completely and totally rendered him unelectable. And, and yet he refuses to go away. He's trying to settle scores. He's going after Republicans that didn't necessarily do everything that he wanted to do, and he's trying to defeat them. Um, it, it's, it's all about him. It's not about the Republican Party. It is a recipe for disaster in 2024. And, yeah, this last thing over the weekend about Paul Ryan, because – Paul Ryan spoke the truth. Paul Ryan said, hey, he thought that there were a lot of Republicans in the House who would have voted to impeach him after the January 6th riots, but just didn't have the guts to do it. And that then drew the attack of Donald Trump. Well, at some point in time, don't we need to say enough is enough? And if you like Trump policies, that that that's all well and good. But can't you find a different messenger, somebody who, I don't know, has the emotional maturity of something a little bit above an eight-year-old? 855-616-1620. Scott in Greendale. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Um, good topic. Thanks for taking the call. Yes, sir. Um, so I was a huge Trump supporter, even like help volunteer and all that. I, and I think your your words were perfect. I loved his policies. I, I think he, at the time, was really good for standing up for what a lot of quiet conservatives like myself 
really needed at that time. But moving forward, like we <clears throat> have gotten to a point in this in this country where as much as policy is is absolutely critical moving forward, I need somebody that can work together and is less divisive. And I just don't believe that that would be Donald Trump. And I will say, you know, one thing, I've never met Paul Ryan like you. I've never had the opportunity to like you have. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's an awesome guy. But I wish knowing the volatility of of Donald Trump, he wouldn't have said what he said, only because I'm just so sick and tired of talking about the whole thing, you know, regardless. And I just know that, you know, with him saying that, you know, the type of person Donald Trump is. And so you're going to come on back and then he's going to, you know, one up you. But just a couple points for you. No, I appreciate I guess that's I mean, I I, I understand that's sort of like saying, okay, you know, that there's this bully out there. So, you know, maybe you don't want to confront it because you don't want the you don't you won't don't want the bully to turn on you. Well, I I think sometimes we we need to have this conversation as we look forward. And by the way, there's a lot of really good Republican candidates that are out there. I I am a huge fan of Ron DeSantis. And I know some people just, oh, Ron DeSantis is the real thing. I I like DeSantis. There's all sorts of other people I, I like as as well. But I think it it's time to move on. And I understand there's some people that are just clinging to this almost sort of cult like worship, but it's not it's not going to work out. And every time you see stuff like this over the weekend, it just demonstrates more and more why we need to figure out how to how to move on from somebody who has just demonstrated that emotionally they are not fit to be the leader of the free world. At least that's my opinion. 855-616-1620. Is it France in Salem? Fran, F-R-A-N. Fran. Hi, Fran. That's my, that's my wife's name. Okay. Hi, Hi Fran. I, I understand. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, I voted for Trump in the past. I would not do it again. Um, he, he's gone off the rail. The, I worked at the elections. They were not, you know, they were not faulty. I've worked at them for several years. But what what concerns me right now, and I know Paul Ryan and totally respect him, but what concerns me now is the endorsement for Tim Michaels. I was going to vote for Tim Michaels. And now that he's been endorsed by Trump, I don't think that's going to happen. I think I'm going back to Rebecca. Hmm. I, I think Trump is going to hurt those people. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, over the, the primary season, like I say, the, the Trump endorsement has sort of been a mixed bag. It it probably put the guy, mm-hmm. Oz in Pennsylvania, probably put him over the top in a very close race. But it, it's his, his, a lot of his preferred candidates have just gone down in flames. And, and in many cases, he's endorsing people who were going to win anyway. So it's tough to tell what the value of that is. And it is going to be interesting, Fran, to see how it all plays out. Is it going to be a net plus or a net minus? that he's decided to get involved in the Wisconsin election. And I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah. 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 You know, I see a lot of Trump signs along the road. And, and yes, he, you know, he did a lot of good things when he was in office. If he could just keep his mouth shut, that would really help us all, help the, the Republican Party. Oh, no, thank you. Well, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, there... You, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And this is the ongoing frustration. You, you had, look, he had, he had this management style. He's always been a bully. It's always been like the chaos theory and things like that. And I think a lot of people are willing to overlook it because actually, you know, you compare the four years of Trump to where, what Biden's done in the last year and a half, and it's, it's not even close. But at, at some point in time, 
I, I think, you know, you, you have to be able to say, look, we, we need somebody with the emotional temperament of something, like I say, o- over a 10-year-old. And, and you're not, you are just not seeing that. And again, the obsession on the, the 2020 election, and yes, I've seen the 2000 Mules movie and things like that. And I understand that there's there's these conspiracy theorists out there who bounce from theory to theory. I will be the first one to acknowledge that I think there were, I don't think there was fraud in the election. I think, and I've tried to explain this the best way I can, I think you had, in Wisconsin, for example, you had election laws that were subject to interpretation and that you had some clerks of court in large liberal areas, large Democrat-leaning areas, who chose to interpret the laws in a way that allowed them to kind of juice the turnout, and indirectly that was juicing the, the Biden turnout. That's not fraud to me. And what it means is, you know, we need to clarify what these rules are, and we need to clarify what the laws are, but it's not fraud. Fraud is Lyndon Johnson getting elected to the Senate by, hey, we, we've just found boxes and boxes of ballots. Or, you know, Richard Daly in Chicago, mysteriously, all these people who were dead were voting. You know, what I'm saying is interpretations of the law that I believe to be incorrect are different than fraud. And if you want to clear up what the law is supposed to be, well, in Wisconsin, for example, it, it's real easy. What you need to do is you need to have, you know, the Democrats in power and a Democratic governor or the Republicans in the legislature in power and a Republican governor. And then, you know, you, you can have the, the laws that are going to change or you need the Supreme Court to step in and make rulings on all these different things. But this idea that, oh, it, it's been stolen and things like that. But Even if you believe that, don't you need to move on from that and figure out what are going to be the issues that are going to move the needle for voters in November of 2022? And I'll tell you what they are. You know, gas is over $5 a gallon, for God's sake. All right. It's doubled what it was when Joe Biden took over a little over a year ago or 15 months ago. It's up double. That's something that's impacting it. Inflation is eight, you know, plus percent. Crime is out of control. Those are the issues that people care about. And, you know, the candidates that succeed are going to be the ones that figure that out. And all this other obsession and then this sniping and, well, you know, Fox News is just terrible because, you know, they, they're not talking about this election anymore. Well, okay, you, you got to be able to move on from that. Otherwise, you're just that drunk at the end of the bar at one thirty in the morning who's complaining that, you know, the Packers shouldn't have kicked that field goal that ended up, you know, losing the game or, or whatever. And you need to kind of move on. And lashing out at Paul Ryan, that's just not the case. Um, Jeff, I did not like Donald Trump's mouth, but I liked his policies. It would not bother me if somebody brought some of his policies back to government uh, again. Yeah, that's that's it. Jeff, regardless of how anyone feels about Paul Ryan, the fact of the matter is Trump cannot move on from 2020 and other than diehard Trump supporters who will vote for him instead of focusing on Biden's failures. He's shooting himself in the foot by focusing on 2020 move forward. Um, Yes, you know, you 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 had that. And I guess that's that's the point. Um, Jeff, I'm with a caller named Fran. I was so excited that Tim might with Tim Michaels, but not anymore. Rebecca Clayfish will now get my 
support. Um, yes, good afternoon. I'm from River West. I consider myself an independent voter, um, or as others would call a swing voter. I voted for Trump the first time against Hillary Clinton. I could not vote for him um, the last time, um, and I can't vote for him if he's on the ticket again. I, that, this is... This is what's out there. And I'm just saying that this is the reality that Republicans need to to deal with. And I understand that there is a certain segment of Donald Trump loyalists who love it when he attacks anybody who doesn't do exactly what he wants. But, you know, that neighborhood bully gets old. And I continue to believe that the sooner as somebody who's looking at all the problems this country has and this state has and this community has, I want people who can solve it. I want different policies personally than we've seen from Tony Evers and Joe Biden. But you're not going to get it if you allow yourself to be stuck with this, this Donald Trump anger, hatred or whatever. It's time to move on. And since the former president can't move on, maybe everybody else needs to. Paul Ryan, what's the thing here? Let me pull this up again. Paul Ryan, despised in Wisconsin for being a pathetic loser. I I think, you know, when you think about Paul Ryan, you think about many things. Pathetic loser is not one of them. Despised in the great state of Wisconsin? Don't think so. Non-fatal, but forever changed. This week on Wisconsin's radio station, WTMJ's Jane Matinair goes beyond the initial police report and interviews professionals who work with people who've been the victims of gun violence and survived. Tune in to Wisconsin's Morning News every day at 5.50 and Wisconsin's Afternoon News at 4.40 to hear about the long-term effects. The stories that matter to you on 620 WTMJ. One of our listeners does make the correct point. Jeff, you said Donald Trump tweeted out. He, he's, he's not on Twitter. That, that's right. He, he took to his, his truth social media platform, which I, I use the generic term of, of tweets because it's easier for people to understand. So yes, he, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't on Twitter. He sent it out on his own social media platform, but the effect was absolutely the same. No question about it. All right. It has been a month since Wisconsin Family Action, their headquarters in Madison were firebombed. Remember the story? I mean, somebody somebody threw um, two firebombs, Molotov cocktails, into the, the building. They trashed the outside. Thankfully, the Molotov cocktails did not go off. So apparently what happened is people broke in and then started some other fires and vandalized the place. That, that was a, a month ago. Following the incident, an organization calling itself Jane's Revenge claimed responsibility for setting the fires, warned more violence was going to come if similar organizations didn't uh, disband nationwide. Some of the messages that were spray-painted, for example, on the side of the building, if abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either. All right, so you know, here, here you have a place that's firebombed. There are threats that are made against that building and others. I, I bring up the fact that it's been a month and at least to my knowledge, no charges issued and nobody who has been identified as the perpetrator. And I know the Madison police say they're working on it and they say they brought in some of the FBI. I, I guess I, I look at this and let, let's just take a step back. If this were a Planned Parenthood operation, Planned Parenthood facility that had been firebombed, that had been vandalized, 
that an organization claimed credit and said, we're going to do this again. And what was the phrase? You know, um, if abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either. And if it had been, uh, again, something on the other side, you know very well that there would have been law enforcement resources, federal law enforcement resources that would have been parachuted in, appropriately so, to the area of where that firebombing and these attempted threats occurred. You knew that this would be a front page story day after day after day, and appropriately so, as you try to, you know, identify, you know, what what maniac is doing something like this, especially if they're calling themselves an organization, you know, whatever's revenge, and that they've targeted these. You know, you know this would be investigated as a hate crime. You know that this would be a front-page story. I bring this up because it's been essentially a month since the firebombing of that facility, and crickets, just absolute crickets. Now, I'm sure law enforcement's got this on the list of things, but, you know, where, where, where is the federal presence? Where is the influx of agents? Where is the huge investigation determining who was responsible for trying to do this and who has threatened other people? And as far as double standards go, like I say, if this was a Planned Parenthood uh, thing that this had happened to, I guarantee you it would have been front page news. My guess is, and most of you, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of remember that. Whatever happened to that? And the answer is, at least as far as identifying the organization and issuing charges, Nothing, nothing has happened, at least as far as the charges go. Talk about double standards. It's been a month. Some of the other breaking news over the weekend is you will remember, well, it was a couple months ago, actually January 23rd, you found that this mass shooting, they found six bodies inside a home near North 21st Street and West Wright Street. In several of the murders, they were what we describe as sort of execution-style slayings. Apparently, um, now an individual has been charged with that. The, the theory that the prosecutors are operating under is it was a drug house. This guy was one that's now been charged, and his name is, the arrest is Travis, his name is Travis Berkeley. He was allegedly one of the guards at the drug house who then together with his cousin decided that they were going to rob the drug house and it turns into a robbery gone bad where they killed the people that they're working for and then killed other people six people totally in order to um, make sure that there were no witnesses left which is again i guess maybe as horrible as it is it's one of the occupational hazards i guess of, of running a drug house in any event he has now been charged and will be charged with more crimes as the police attempt to clear these things but it's just it's just another Another example of just the, the horrible level of violence that exists in the city. And, and once again, uh, here's a guy who apparently working as a guard at a drug house. Going back to 2002, he had a, a felony when he was a, ju- a minor, had a felony adjudication of attempted. Let me make sure I got it right here. Uh, f- he was found delinquent on a felony case of first-degree reckless homicide, which I believe probably would have banned him from owning a gun. But obviously that didn't stop him because my guess is, you know, that's one of the prerequisites, having guns if you're going to be a guard at a drug house. In any event, it appears that the police, and credit to the Milwaukee police, for at least bringing one of the alleged killers to justice. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. I was in an event on Saturday night. It was not a political event, but a number of the people were there who are, I, I know, very active and tuned into to politics. And, you know, one of the undercurrents were a number of them were, were asking me about the, the Tim Michaels campaign and his entry into the, the race for governor. And, and as, as a general rule, I, I said, well, you know, I, I think he's a welcome addition. I think he's a strong candidate. And just like I think there's a number of strong candidates that are out there. And um, to a person, the people, and there was at least a half dozen people in independent conversations that brought this up, they were very, very impressed. People said, well, I, I heard him speak at this or that. They were very, very impressed with, with Tim Michaels. I, I don't know who's going to win the Republican primary to take on uh, Tony Evers. I, I think for a lot of Republicans, the question is, okay, who do we think is, who do you think is going to be the candidate that's that's got the best chance of, of winning? And that's what I think the candidates are going to have to, that's the case that they have to make between now and the primary in early August. Because the truth of the matter is, I think there's, whether it's Rebecca Clayfish or Tim Michaels or Kevin Nicholson, you're, you're seeing solid conservatives. So I, I don't know from a perspective of the issues. I don't know that there's that much difference between any of the candidates. So it's really more a matter of personality and more a matter of who do you think is best positioned to win and things like that. So in any event, I, I, just, I was hearing all sorts of positive things from people, including some people who I would describe as movers and shakers, who are very, very positive about Tim Michaels, which now brings us to the controversy and the att- attempt by the Democratic Party of Wisconsin to get Michaels removed from the ballot. Let me explain this, and then let's have a discussion about whether or not this is an argument that has merit or whether or not this is frivolous. In order to get on a ballot for an office, you need to go out and secure nominating signatures for from people, you know, who say, yes, I think you should be on, on the ballot. And there's a different number of, of signatures that you need for each of the different um, situations. To run for governor, you need 2,000 valid signatures. Now, the Michaels campaign goes out and they, they get several thousand otherwise valid signatures. And I'll I'll tell you what the controversy is in a minute. By valid signatures, I mean they are from people who live in the state of Wisconsin. So nobody is arguing that the signatures are not valid. Nobody is arguing that the signatures aren't properly dated. I mean, sometimes sometimes what happens is, you know, people will misdate it. Like the the person who circulated them has to put a, a date of the date that they're circulating and sometimes somebody will put the wrong date and it'll be before the the thing the circulator says they did it and those signatures will get struck sometimes they're non-existent addresses there, there's problems that you have but this is this is not an issue the signatures are not an issue so what is the issue with the michaels things well let me give you a version of, of this when i was growing up i grew up in glendale I, I lived um, just a couple blocks from Nicolay. My parents lived a couple blocks from Nicolay High School. Now, technically, it was Glendale. I grew up in Glendale, Wisconsin, but I, I, I never you when I would 
when I would like sign up for things and use a mailing address, it would be the street address of my home. And most times we would put Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53217. And even though technically I lived in the municipality of Glendale, if you put Milwaukee, the, the postal service would deliver it. Right. And, and I just used Milwaukee because um, I, that's just what I did. I thought of myself as, as living it was Milwaukee County. You know, I, I, I just never made the distinction. And, so, you know, the Postal Service, they, they recognized that. It didn't matter whether you said Glendale, Wisconsin, 53217 or Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53217. They would deliver the, the stuff. Never thought anything about it. Well, here's the deal. Um, in the State Elections Commission Guide for Candidates and Nomination Papers, what what they say is that if a candidate has a mailing address that is different from their residential address, what needs to happen is you need to have both addresses on there. If your residence is somehow different than your mailing address. Okay, so here is the controversy involving Tim Michaels. Um, Michaels physical address where he physically lives wisconsin is technically in the municipality of the village of shaniqua all right which is like a a small little village in lake country all right the mailing address is technically in the heartland zip code so for example in michael's case you put the street address and you could put Shaniqua, Wisconsin, with the zip code, or you could put Heartland, Wisconsin, with the zip code. It's the same address. And what would happen is the mail is going to get delivered, right? That, that's, the, that's the deal. Apparently, on the nomination forms that were preprinted and circulated, they list the mailing address for Michaels as being in the village of Shaniqua. It does not also say that, by the way, this is in the Heartland zip code. It's the same address. You know, it's 1234 West, you know, whatever. But it says Shaniqua, Wisconsin, and then the zip code. The argument is, in addition to saying Shaniqua, Wisconsin, whatever the zip code is, it should also separately say Heartland, Wisconsin. It's the same address. There's no issue that there's two places. And what the Postal Service would do is, if you were to send Tim Michaels a letter... It wouldn't matter whether you put Shaniqua, Wisconsin, zip code, or Heartland, Wisconsin, zip code. It it gets delivered one way or, or the other. But the argument is that, okay, this is a technicality, and he should have, even though it's the same address, he should have put not only Village of Shaniqua, but also Heartland, Wisconsin. Now, four years ago, this issue came up with the Elections Committee Commission, and you had two judicial candidates that committed the, you know, same quote-unquote error. But in both cases, you know, since the Postal Service said, well, mail is going to be delivered, you know, regardless of whether you put Shaniqua or Heartland on it, Jeff, mail to your house when you were growing up would be delivered regardless of whether you put Milwaukee or Glendale on it. Um, it, it's, there, there's no issue here. The Democrats are now trying to knock Tim Michaels off the ballot because even though the nominating papers did list his address, no question about that, it simply said Village of Shaniqua, Wisconsin, zip code, without also saying Heartland, Wisconsin, zip code. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, what do you think about this? 
is this, as a general rule, the Elections Commission always tries to, I, I think, err on the side of letting people onto to ballots and is very, very reluctant to strike people from the ballots because of technicalities. And this, even assuming Michael's made a mistake, would be the ultimate of technicalities because nobody argues, uh, again, that the residence isn't correctly put on there. It's the same residence, same street address, that, and mail would, in fact, be delivered. 855-616-1620. So what do you think? Should Michael's be knocked off the ballot? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. Jeff, the candidate is going to be making laws, should have done a little more homework. Possibly he wouldn't be the first elected official to not live in the district he represents. Okay, let me stop here. That's that, that's not what this is. This is not a question of, you know, do you, like sometimes happens as state representatives, where do they live and what district? There is no question that Michaels put the correct address on his nominating papers. One, two, three, four, you know, West First Lane, whatever that might be. He put Shaniqua, Wisconsin, which is accurate. But also the mailing address, it's technically not Shaniqua, Wisconsin. It's Heartland, Wisconsin. Same address, same zip code. If you mail stuff there, it's going to get delivered. So he's identified that. But the the argument is, well, he should have also put Heartland besides Shaniqua, you know, because technically the mailing address is different than the address of residence. Like I said, my example was I grew up in Glendale. I used to put Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You know, same zip code, and it didn't matter whether I put Glendale or Milwaukee, as long as I had the correct street address. It wasn't like there was another house. This was the same house. Should this be the basis for disqualifying him? 855-616-1620. And I do, as some of you are texting, this is, you know, we have this conversation before, just on, 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 Earlier this week, last week, you know, we had the conversation about technicalities. I mean, in Pennsylvania, the question was, all right, if you did not have a date on your absentee ballot that you submitted, but it was received before, you know, Election Day, should it be counted? Because the rules say you're supposed to put a date on it. Right. The rules say you're supposed to put a date on it. Well, obviously, it's undated, but still it got there before the election day. So it wouldn't have made any difference. It was clearly submitted in a timely fashion. And we had an interesting conversation about that. Should be should that be disqualifying or not? This to me is a little bit different than that, because this is the ultimate technicality. Right. Should it keep Michaels off the ballot? 855-616-1620. Mike, who's calling us from Illinois. Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? Absolutely not should it disqualify him. You know, I live on a border between two towns, and sometimes they have the wrong city, and it still comes to me. So, you know, it's not like he's gaining any sort of advantage by doing this. I truly believe the Democrats feel threatened by him and are trying to get him off the ballot. Yeah, well, thanks. So, I mean, there is that there is that that kind of element that's there, or at least certainly trying to embarrass him. And let me say this: I don't think this objection is going anywhere because, uh, again, it's the same it's the same address. So, I it, it's not like there's two different houses, and the information it it, it does correctly identify. It, it's not like he's claiming to live in Portage when he lives in Shaniqua. 
It's just a question of the mailing address being different. And I, I, now you could say that, okay, this is what you have election lawyers for and people should be able to check this out. And I guess in Rebecca Clayfish's nominating paper, she's in sort of the same situation. Somebody's texting, but, and, and so it lists both on there. But to me, this is the ultimate technicality. Is this the basis for throwing somebody off a ballot? Let's talk to Bill and Racine. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Hi, I'm from Racine County, sir. Are, we, are you there? Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Okay, I'm from Racine County. Actually, we live in the town of Raymond. We do not have a post office. There's 3,000 people at a Blue Ribbon grade school and all this, but we do not have a post office. We deliver out of Franksville, which is on the other side of the interstate, six miles away. I don't know. If I would have put down Raymond for my address, I'm sure the Franksville postal uh, d- driver will, would find me, but... Um, Mm-hmm. I don't think, see, that's a big deal. I mean, it's like Shaniqua and Heartland, Raymond, Franksville, right? maybe even Caledonia like that. It, yeah. Small towns don't have post offices anymore. Yeah, no, thanks. You're right. I mean, one of the couple people are pointing out, like, like Thienesville and Mequon. You you know, it's the, if you live in Thienesville, um, but it's kind of like, I think it's like the Mequon post office, you, you can, you know, if you live in Thienesville, you can put Mequon, Wisconsin on it, and, and your mail is going to find you there at, at that address. If we were talking about different addresses, it would be a different story, and that's clearly what this is, I think, designed to do, where your residence and your mailing address are are different. In this case, it's it's the same place. It's just, is it going to be Glendale or is it going to be Milwaukee? I mean, I lived for 30 years in Whitefish Bay, and, and yes, you had you know your, your own postal service, but if you put Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I lived in Whitefish Bay, trust me that that mail was going to get there. Mark in Oconomowoc. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I agree with the other callers. I just, I don't, it seems so nitpicky to me. Uh, you know, and as far as getting uh, taken off the ballot, no way. I live in the Village's Summit my whole life. Oh, now the Village's Summit. I have an Oconomowoc mailing address. I used to have a telefield phone number, but all my mail seems to get to me. It just seems ridiculous that you take them off a ballot for that. It just seems so nitpicky and, like, who cares to me, you know? Well, right. No, thank, right. I mean, th- this would be the ultimate technicality because, again, if we're, we're, we're talking about the same residence and, you know, and does it – does it matter whether and, and both both of them are accurate? It is in the village of of Shaniqua. There, there's no question about it. It's not like he misrepresented where that was, but it's also got a Heartland mailing address because of again as we've been talking about these are the things that happen. Look, I, I think this argument is going ultimately nowhere. I do acknowledge though that there is this irony here because. Um, you have for the last couple of years, you've had some Republicans who have been arguing, and I'm not one of them, who have been arguing that, you know, any little variation on an absentee ballot or something like that should disqualify the, the ballots. And so now, again, for for see, I think you need to make a distinction when it comes to like looking at ballots. Is it is it a minor technicality or is it a major flaw which calls into question the accuracy of the ballot? To me, that has always been what the interpretation should be. And in this case, if you apply that standard that I've tried to apply across the board, this is it's the same address. There's no question he lives there. I don't think this is going anywhere with the Elections Commission. And even if it does, it's not going to withstand a a challenge in court. There's no way in Wisconsin that if you've got you know thousands and thousands of valid signatures you're going to get bumped from the ballot because of this that that's just 
That is just the reality. Um, now, is there a rocky road getting there? Should the Michaels campaign have, I don't know, hired the lawyer who looks through this and says, hey, you know, just to be on the safe side, we need to, we should put both addresses on there. Well, that's a whole different story. Do you take him off the ballot for this? Absolutely not. And is there a value to, does this make the Democrats look kind of petty and picky and maybe trying to keep him off the ballot? Well, yeah, I think you can make that argument. But again, this is what happens when you have to try to determine what technicalities are important and what technicalities aren't. Have you ever been to Normandy? I have not. If if you ever get a chance to go, do it. I, I, I've heard it's just... You know, that, that we, we did the listener trip there last September, and it was, you know, River Cruise and the Seine. But it, there's a lot... There was lots of wonderful, we saw Versailles, we saw Paris, there's all sorts of things. But the day that we went to Normandy is a day that I will remember for my entire life. Because we we went to you know, Omaha Beach, and you can just, you can just, you look at the terrain and you can imagine what the, the soldiers were experiencing. They said, okay, the German guns were here. And we went to Utah Beach, and we went to uh, St. Mary Glaze, which is the town that the, the, the Band of Brothers that they parachuted into. Um, all those sort of things, but we also went to the American Cemetery that you were just talking about on the newscast, and it's just you, you words do not you, you can't find words to describe that experience. And and the more that I read about it, and the the gratitude of the French people, oh, yes. and and how they care for these graves, oh, yeah. and and really take this on as a family and and watch over these these graves for for generations. You know, it's there, there's this. It's funny you should mention that because I think it was the it was the cruise we did before that, but we ended up partially in France, and we we end up in a having lunch at the, this bistro and stuff, and you know, and, and it's fine as we're walking out. There's this older gentleman who's the owner of the the, the, the cafe, the bistro, and he can clearly tell it was, it was Fran and I and our friends Mike and Kathy, and he could we were Americans and stuff, and he comes up and he starts hugging us because he was like six years old when the Germans occupied th- this town and so he lived in german occupation for three or four years and he's hugging us and there's, literally there's tears welling up in this guy's eyes because he's thanking us you know for for freeing the the city back in the in the 1940s and 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 and, and so i think there's this attitude sometimes that you travel places and it's always they view us as the ugly americans or whatever no and to your point as well yes the, the french maintain the these graveyards and stuff but there's there's a lot of people out there who uh, appreciate the things that the United States has, has done uh, so that you know, France is free. Well, and I think, unfortunately, one of the one of the veterans and uh, a lot of our World War II vets are gone now, unfortunately. Uh, but one of the men who, who survived and was at today's ceremony said, we thought when we did this and got rid of the Nazis, this would be the end. And now we see what's going on in Ukraine and the Russian war against Ukraine, and it's right. just it's just heartbreaking. You know, it is. But that's, that's, that's what I was thinking of. So again, it's and you know, if if people ever get an opportunity to do that, now I I happen to like Paris a lot. I like the south of France. But if if you ever get a chance to go to France, it's worth making sure you can figure out a way to get to Normandy because it will be a life altering experience. So that's cool. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I just sent out a tweet with a link to this, this Tim Michael story that we were just talking about. And, and I guess I'll give you my take. There, there's no way that this gets Tim Michaels bounced from the ballot, nor, nor should it. 
Um, still, it is, and I always say this to candidates who have technical problems with their, their papers and stuff, it's probably something that could have and should have been caught before the nominating papers were printed and circulated. I, I remember, this is 30 years ago that I ran for statewide office, but I, I can remember, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm putting on my lawyer hat and um, my campaign, tr- uh, one, one of my, my treasurer at the time, he was an attorney, as well, his, he is an attorney as well, and we were, we're just, election laws are so obscure, and there, there's just so many pitfalls that are there in the technicalities that you really, you know, you almost have to have somebody who knows just in depth what all the, the vagaries are of this to, um, again, to to uh, to deal with it. I don't, I'm trying to think of, because when I ran for office, I lived in Whitefish Bay, and I'm not sure, I'm, I'm sure we, we probably had Whitefish Bay on there. I don't think that was a, a separate uh, address. I think I'm pretty sure we ended up putting Whitefish Bay, but there's all these like little technical pitfalls, and the Elections Commission has historically they're not bouncing people from the ballot for for technical violations of the rules. Which, to the extent this is a violation of the rules, that that it would be the ultimate in a technicality. But there there's just so many pitfalls for candidates, and you got to uh, pay attention to that. All right, there. What what happened in Texas? In the aftermath of what happened in Buffalo, and now what has happened all over the country, I mean, Chattanooga, Tennessee, now there's all the, now the phrase is is mass shootings, and which are kind of like different, I guess, from like the, the terrorist attacks, because there are, unfortunately, there are mass shootings that happen in urban areas on, on a, an alarmingly regular basis, and it's, it's not just like a school shooting in Texas where 19 children and two adults are, end up being killed, but, you know, you, you have you had the mass shooting we were talking about earlier in Milwaukee where you have the guy who was allegedly working as a guard of the drug house who, together with somebody else, decided they were going to rob the drug house and killed everybody inside the alleged, you know, red drug house because they didn't want to leave witnesses. You know, that, that ends up being a, a mass shooting as well. So there, there's all sorts of, you had the thing in Philadelphia over over the weekend, which sounds like two idiots get into an argument, pull out guns and start shooting at each other. And in the process of shooting at each other, they're indiscriminately shooting at a whole bunch of other people as well. And that turns into, again, a mass shooting because you've got too many idiots, most of whom probably aren't legally allowed to own firearms in the first place, but they have firearms. And then, of course, they're just willing to to use them. And it's a huge problem. I mean, gun violence is a huge problem. At the same time, as I always argue, politics is the art of the possible. And I think sometimes legislators, uh, in their effort to try to appeal to parts of their base or raise money, just decide that we're going to we're going to dig in and we're we're not going to we're not going to pay attention to what is realistic. You know there are just tens of millions of of different types of firearms that are in private possession. You're not going to get those out of the hands of law-abiding firearms owners. And the argument would be, well, okay, if even let's let's take you know the the semi-automatic rifle. If there's 20 million of them out there. There's only a very very small percentage which are used illegally. So you know, do you concentrate your effort on trying to take those away from the 19.99999 million people who legally own it because you might have some crazy that's going to you know go out and act out, or does it make more sense to try to do other things which at least on the edges 
might serve to make us safer. And one of the things that drives me crazy about the gun control debate is you, you have absolutists. You have the people that are essentially the gun banners. And, and you want to say to them, that's just not going to happen. You have a Second Amendment in this country. But moreover, you're, you're never going to be able to go out and confiscate guns. It's just not going to happen. And then on the other side, you have the people who dig in and say, we it's a slippery slope. We, we don't want any sort of regulation at all. And that drives me nuts as well, because you want to say, can't we have some common sense things that we could agree on? Which brings me to what is going to be going on in Washington this week, that there might be some efforts to come up with some, re- what I mean, what people would argue would be some reasonable sorts of measures. We're not going to take guns away. President Biden, that's that's just not going to happen. You're you're not going to confiscate, you know, semi-automatic rifles. There, there's not political support for that in the country. You've got the Second Amendment, and then there's this practical issue of how how do you make 20 million people turn in their semi-automatic, you know, style rifles? At the same time, though, that doesn't mean that we should necessarily do nothing. Here's a couple of the things that they are looking for, and, and let me let me throw these out and ask whether or not this seems like reasonable stuff. And I'm not suggesting that this will stop mass shootings. I'm not suggesting that this is going to stop gangbangers from going down to Water Street and, and firing crime guns illegally. But are, are these a couple of reasonable measures that maybe people could agree on? First of all, they're saying, all right, to, to buy semi-automatic rifle, the so-called assault rifles, you know, they want to raise the age from 18 to 21. All right, raise the age of that. The high capacity magazines. Um, as, as I've said before, I, I have a I have a handgun. I have a nine millimeter Smith and Wesson revolver, uh, Smith and Wesson pistol. It, it's got it's got a magazine. The magazine I think has eight shots in it. You can put one in the chamber, so you have a you have a nine you have a capacity of nine shots. Do you need? Do we need to have? These giant high capacity magazines that carry that that have thirty or more rounds in them. Who needs that? You don't do you need that to shoot a deer? No. Do you need it for target shooting? No, it probably is actually going to get in the way. Do you need it for self defense? Well, I, I'm sorry if 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 nine or ten rounds isn't enough with the ability to reload if you need another, you know, magazine, the ability to reload quickly is, I mean, I understand why the cops need it. I understand why military people need it. But do average citizens really need to have high capacity magazines? And then they're talking about expanded red flag laws, which would give the government more ability to go and identify people who are mentally unstable and shouldn't be, you know, owning or purchasing handguns. Why, why wouldn't we do that if we all agree that part of the problem is that people who shouldn't have guns, felons, um, unstable people, shouldn't we, you know, perhaps and you know, give people the right to give the government the right, law enforcement the right to intervene and say, you know what, you know, there, there's all these red flags that are out there. And, you know, we we don't know for sure that you're going to act out. But and the exercise of being safe rather than sorry, you know, maybe while these conditions persist, you know, maybe you, you shouldn't be buying a bunch of guns and a bunch of ammunition. 855-616-1620 without even talking about background checks, expanded red flag laws, 
raising the age to buy certain types of firearms to 21, and limiting high-capacity magazines. Is that really controversial, or is this something that maybe we could all agree on? 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I understand that, does that stop all mass shootings? Of course it doesn't. Not arguing that it would, but, uh, you know, maybe... Maybe, given the fact that you've had a couple of these like school shootings that have involved kids just out of high school, maybe it would have made it more difficult for them to get certain types of firearms if you raise the age to 21. 855-616-1620. You know, what do you think? Is, is there some common ground that we should be able to find? And if so, where is it? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. Here's a texter. Which, and, and I appreciate the sentiment, but it underscores the problems that we have in trying to get reasonable regulations. Jeff, high-capacity magazines should not be illegal simply because you feel there is no need for them. There is no need for a car to have 400 horsepower, but no one says if we limit the horsepower, then we will curb reckless driving. But but cars are, are different than guns. And uh, again, you okay, what is the purpose of a high-capacity magazine? Well, I, I understand if you're... In the military, you, you want to fire as many shots as you can without having to reload. I get it. There's a valid purpose. Law enforcement. I understand why law enforcement, you know, in a SWAT team situation, you'd want a high-capacity magazine that allows you to fire as many shots as possible without reloading. But from the perspective of a civilian owning a firearm, right, why, why what is the purpose of having a, a magazine that shoots 30 rounds without having to, to reload? Is it you, Nobody uses that for, for hunting. Nobody really, I don't think, uses it for target shooting. And look, and I appreciate that the vast majority of you who own high-capacity magazines, you're, you're not criminals, and you're not going to misuse it. And, and I get it, but when you look at crime guns and these shootings, that those high-capacity magazines tend to be disproportionately used. So... Can't we, recognizing again that that's not going to stop all the, the mass shootings or anything, can't we just say reasonably, you know, maybe maybe that's 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 a start. Just like we've um, made it more difficult, used to be able to buy those those kits that could convert a semi-automatic rifle into an automatic rifle, the bump stocks and things. We don't do that anymore. Um, is is that that unreasonable? And if you just dig the line in and say no restrictions ever. I mean, do you, do you really kind of hurt the cause by, uh, again, being that adamant? 855-616-1620. Let's talk to, um, let's see, Sharon. Sharon, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yes, Jeff. Hello. Um, I'm, I'm just listening to the conversation, and I've thought all along, if these people are using these weapons of, of war, why are we making ammunition available to them? Why don't you penalize the stores that are selling the ammunition if it's illegal and take it off the Internet? If they don't have the ammunition, they're not going to use that gun. At least uh, it's a way to start. Well, I mean, are you saying it's like ban the sale of ammunition so deer hunters or target shooters no, can't totally. buy? I'm, to- I'm talking about no. I'm talking only about these these uh, AR-15s and the so forth, the the weapons of war. Mm-hmm. Why, uh, if they're out on the streets and they have ammunition, of, of course, if they have any reason to use it, they certainly will because they have all these rounds in their backpack. Let's take away the ammunition. Well, I mean, I guess the I mean, thanks to call. I mean, the the problem 
is with that is that, I, I mean, we, we talk about these as being weapons of war, and there's a lot of folks that would say, hey, a, a semi-automatic rifle, as scary as it looks, that, that's really not a, a weapon of of war. Or, you know, that that handgun you have, that 9 millimeter pistol, I mean, that's really not a, a weapon of war. So we're, we're not, you know, because there, there's shootings that are involving handguns and things like that, we're, we're not going to produce the ammunition so for all the people that are target shooters or want to use the firearm for self-defense i think banning ammunition is a tough it's sort of a tough way to go because it it effectively bans the use of firearms and i just don't think politically something like that is going to happen i i do i do think that you could get reasonable people to say okay Raising the age to to buy a semi-automatic rifle, raising it from 18 to 21, isn't going to be the end of the world. 855-616-1620. John, John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yes, thank you. Uh, Two of the points you make don't work. One is the high-capacity magazines. You say, well, you don't need them. People don't need to climb mountains. People don't need to go skydiving. People don't need a lot of things. It's what people choose to do. Not to get into an explanation of what is the uh, what is the desire for high capacity magazines. And the other one is the red flag law because what the Democrats want is no questions asked, a finger point, and that's it. Go get them. You somebody doesn't like you, they simply have to call the authorities. Say, hey, this guy said he wants to mm. stop the Democrats. I think sounds dangerous you better go get them and that person does not get identified that's the way they want it and that is no good you're you're falling to what the left wants to do well i, I guess they first of all they think and i assume the one that you agreed with me with was raising the age i i see it that's there are states that that have red flag laws and and you don't hear this argument you I mean you build enough controls in so it it's not just going to be okay you're pointing your finger anonymously and saying that person's unstable they shouldn't own a gun you know it's not like we're we're writing on a blank page there's all sorts of states that have you know red flag laws my argument is always that i think we should be more aggressive you know we go back and we look at these school shootings and, and one of my themes is you look back and you say, oh, my gosh, everybody knew that this person shouldn't own guns. So look at this. It's a trail of breadcrumbs that were leading up to this. So I, I think you obviously you're correct. You have to build in you have to build in enough protections and enough due process. And that's always the key word, you know, due process to make sure that you're just not indiscriminately taking firearms from people. But most of the people that are going to get caught up with these red flag laws, it's not really even close. So uh, this is going to be the conversation this week. I guess my my point is, I am not a gun banner. I, I don't support and I don't think it's practical to confiscate firearms from people as a general rule. But we do have limitations. You know, we, we don't let felons have guns. Everybody thinks that's a good idea, right? We, we don't let private citizens own machine guns unless you get a special permit. I think we all agree that's good. You don't get to drive a tank. You don't get to have a bazooka, all those sorts of things. And I think we, we just... On both sides, we need to say, okay, if politics is the art of the possible, are there things that we can do which aren't going to solve the whole problem? It's not going to eliminate shootings. That's not going to happen, unfortunately, which is why we need to be aggressive in prosecuting people and getting dangerous people off the street, all those sort of things. But are there reasonable measures that do not significantly implicate people's rights under the Second Amendment? Do not really interfere with gun ownership, but you go, yeah, okay, that one probably makes sense. Just asking. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Tomorrow, my prediction is Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm is going to be, at least tomorrow evening, watching results from something that's happening in San Francisco because there is starting to be backlash. Chisholm was one of, I, I think he, he was the first, uh, one of the first of this kind of new breed of, of district attorney that, that all subscribe to what I call as the, the progressive prosecutor movement, which is in contrast to the kind of prosecutor I was because I was sort of old school. But the progressive prosecutor movement, you know, these these are people who think, oh, we're, we're putting too many people in prison, and what we need to do is we, we don't want to use you know, sentencing enhancements, and, you know, we don't want to waive juveniles into adult court, and we want to try to find all these alternative measures to avoid incarcerating people. And as Chisholm himself said, he said, look, and I, I understand people are going to die because of this, but I think there's this greater good. Well, all right, he, he's not the only one that does this, but there, there's there's several. This is like the new movement um, that's that's fueling the thinking, okay, we, we've we've incarcerated too many people, and oh you know, my gosh, if you know you you put people who you put felons who are carrying guns, if you put them all in jail, well, you know that's that's just you know that's just going to make them worse criminals. Or you know you got juveniles that are stealing car after car after car. We can't hold them accountable. We we can't waive them into adult court. Well, okay, that has been the strategy that's been followed, and I think it has led to a complete and total disaster. I mean, the idea, and, and you see this. We we talked last week about the uh, the video that was out there, the, the Kia boys, where you get these kids that as, as young as 11 and 12 that are out there, you know, stealing cars because they know there's no accountability. Well, what happens if the police chase you? Oh, that's no problem. We know we just drive dangerously. Well, how many cars, and then they'll stop chasing. Well, how many cars in a given day will you steal? Well, sometimes we steal as many as three or four because we total the one and then we need another one. So we, we drive it. Are you afraid of authorities? No, we're not afraid of the authorities because first of all, they're never going to catch us. And if they do catch us it, it's it's maybe a couple months in juvenile detention that's nothing <laughs> they're, they're laughing at it that and that's the same attitude that has I, I think permeated so much of, of law enforcement we don't hold people accountable we don't take dangerous people and we don't ask for high bails from them now that's after Daryl Brooks, after the Waukesha Christmas Parade massacre, that is starting to change. And one of the things you're starting to see in Milwaukee County, at least, is you have judges and court commissioners who have been played as chumps, in many cases, by district attorneys who've gone along with the defense attorneys. And, oh, let's let's send this person, you know, who's a multiple felon, who's got a gun, let's put him out on, on a signature bond or a $3,000 bond, and we'll put a GPS tracking device on him. So after they, they kill someone with the gun, we'll, we'll be able to maybe find them a little sooner, except they've taken off the GPS monitoring thing then. But, but one of the things that's happening is we're starting to realize that the, this progressive prosecutor movement has been, in my opinion at least, a complete and total failure, which has resulted, particularly in the last couple of years, of the skyrocketing, unacceptable levels of crime, which are rendering many urban areas to just be flat out unlivable. And I understand we talk about guns and everybody says, well, there's too much access, the wrong people getting guns. I agree with that. But it, it starts off, let's take those people who aren't supposed to have guns and let's get them the hell off the streets. 
All right. But that's not what the progressive prosecutor movement is all about. That's not what guys like John Chisholm are all about. So why why do you look to San Francisco? Because two and a half years ago, the district attorney who was elected in San Francisco, um, Chelsea Bowden, um, public defender by background, ran ran on a call of radical change. He said, look, I'm. We're, I'm tired of locking up criminals, and so what we're going to do is we're we're going to change the paradigm. I want to reduce incarceration rates. I want to scrutinize police misconduct. I want to stop, you know, coming down on juveniles. It, it's the whole litany. It's John Chisholm on steroids out in San Francisco. So what what has happened? You know, in the two and a half years since this guy took over. And by the way, this is San Francisco. It's not like the previous district attorney was actually, you know, George Patton of the, the prosecutors. It's not like the previous district attorney was particularly hard on crime, but he was much harder than the guy they have in there now. So what has happened? Well, just like with other quote unquote progressive prosecutors, whether they're in Philadelphia or in Chicago or in Los Angeles, or in San Francisco, the murder rate has spiked, gun crimes have spiked, crime in general is through the roof. And these progressive prosecutor philosophies are just flat-out total of failure. So even in, and I think you can make an argument, I'm thinking about where, where you'd put Madison in this, but I think you can make an argument that San Francisco is still probably the most liberal community, liberal city in the country. Well, even in San Francisco, the people have decided enough is enough. They've said, look, here, here's the problem. The streets have become unlivable. Businesses are being driven out because of crime. The murder rate is up. All these other crime rates are up. And this idea that we're going to... Um, not just be soft on crime, but this idea that we're not going to hold people responsible, we're not going to waive juveniles who deserve it into adult court, the fact that we're going to try to come up with these alternative resolutions for dangerous people, it's just not working. So tomorrow there is a recall election, and who knows exactly what's going to happen, but the polling that is out there suggests that this quote-unquote progressive prosecutor after two and a half years of office in office is going to get get dumped. I mean, that's as a matter of fact, what's happened is a lot of the prosecutors that worked in his office have resigned and they're now working to push the recall because they saw firsthand what a disaster this has turned out to be. If the district attorney in San Francisco is, in fact, recalled, and again, the polls suggest that's going to happen, look for, I don't know if it's going to be recall movements or not, but look for this backlash, which has been coming for a while, to, to really start to take hold. And look, and I understand, like the George Soroses of the world have been pushing this whole idea of, let's be soft on crime, we don't want to lock people up, don't you understand that you can't lock your, uh, you can't incarcerate your way out of crime problems. Well, the problem with that philosophy is, if you don't lock up people when they commit crimes, 
all you're doing is encouraging them to commit more crimes and more victims. And I'm not smart enough to, to deal with the whole root causes thing and, and say, okay, what causes a 12-year-old to go out and take a gun and stick it in somebody's face and, and steal their car? What what causes a 13- and a 15-year-old to go out you know, and carjack a vehicle? What causes an 11-year-old to steal car after car after car? I'm not smart enough to know what that root cause is. And for those smart people, you know, figure it out. All I know is that once people do that kind of stuff, there needs to be consequences and there need to be severe consequences because if there's not severe consequences, they're going to keep doing the bad stuff and they're going to do progressively worse stuff along the way. So I am hoping against hope that the, the voters in uber left-wing, uber-liberal San Francisco rise up and toss this district attorney out on his ear because the philosophy that they have been using is just fundamentally wrong. It's not working. And I hope that sends a message and inspires other law and order candidates in various other communities, whether it's through regular elections or through recalls, to come back and say, hey, this idea, this experiment that we've been trying over the last couple years of not holding people accountable isn't working and it is particularly um, devastating and a particularly bad impact on 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 the communities generally the low income communities because look uh, people who are wealthier they're, they're moving out to areas that are more safe or they're living in gated communities or whatever it, it's the people that that don't have that choice as to where they live they're the ones that are being held hostage to the crime that is running through urban neighborhoods now so it's not a question of socioeconomic status it's a question of right and wrong so I'm hoping that this guy gets tossed out tomorrow on his ear and that inspires other people to say you know what we're doing now isn't working and go out and recruit candidates who are law and order and are willing to say all right we're we're going to hold those juveniles accountable and you know you know you steal that car boom it's not just say okay don't worry about it we'll send you back to mom and dad who don't give a rat's rump about you to begin with and then you know we go off to the races no 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 let's hold some degree of accountability let's get prosecutors in there who are willing to say this progressive prosecution movement sounds really good, but you know what? We're tired of people who should be behind bars, being out on the streets, plundering, killing, and robbing people. So watch this election tomorrow because I think it's going to be a watershed. If the district attorney is recalled, I think that's going to have ramifications that go well beyond San Francisco. So very glad to have you with us. Let's let's talk about something that we, we haven't discussed in the last couple weeks. And it was something that we discussed on a regular basis for a while. That is the war in Ukraine. Now, hear me out on this. It, it's now been 100 plus days. Now, you remember Vladimir Putin made a huge miscalculation. Putin thought that Ukraine was just going to fall fall apart immediately. He thought that they were going to be able to take over the country in a couple days. That has, that has not worked out. And it, it's been, from that perspective, an epic fail. So now Putin has been scaling back his ambitions. He's, I think the best estimates I have is Russia currently occupies about 20% of, of Ukraine, the country. And obviously he wants to expand. Ukraine is, is taking some of it back. But now this war has turned into this kind of slow 
slog, which is resulting in an incredible loss of life and, and you know millions of people being turned into refugees. One of the other miscalculations that Putin made was he thought that the West would not unite against him. And boy, he could not have been more wrong. One of the things you've seen is Russia has now been appropriately so, in my opinion, turned into an an international pariah, certainly among the West. And and any progress that Russia had made over the last 10 or 20 years, that's now gone. And I think it is going to be years and years and years once this thing ends before Russia is accepted back into the, the legitimate international community. Now, I understand that, you know, your, your North Koreas and your Syrias of the world might still have no problems dealing with Russia. But that's that's not where at least I think much of the, the free world is going to be. Putin, however, doesn't know what the the diplomatic off-ramp is. And one of the things that NATO is doing is they're now sending more and more aggressive weapons into Ukraine as as the war goes on. And so as, as Ukraine gets more... NATO firepower, including some of these missiles from the United States, it it makes Putin's job even more frustrating. And he's saber rattling. He's saying, "Hey, this, you know, if if NATO keeps supplying Ukraine with these weapons and you know tries to stop me from taking over this country, you know, this might be the start of World War III, and we might go nuclear and things like that." Meanwhile, you're getting all these reports about catastrophic losses to the Russian army. And, you know, morale being bad and even people in Russia starting to rise up to an extent against the regime and saying, what are we doing in in Ukraine? All right. With all that background, there is now a discussion going on about about the off ramp, about the end game. And you have people like Henry Kissinger. Remember Henry Kissinger, who are out there saying Ukraine needs to back off. And if Ukraine's position is we want to we want to have back what we had before Russia invaded, they should be willing to do that. They should be willing to say, okay, Russia's taken over twenty percent of the country. Let let's let them have that twenty percent, and let's try to ask them not to keep more. So that that's like the position that that Kissinger and some others are arguing. Meanwhile, a lot of people in Ukraine and otherwise are saying, no, you know, we we that's appeasement. We can't give in to Vladimir Putin. You know, we can't let him think that he can just invade a country and somehow take 20 percent of it. No, we need we need to drive them back. And also we need to demand reparations. Look at what they've done to this country or else they're going to do something else. Other people say, cut your losses. We need peace. We need a resolution. And if that resolution means allowing Russia to essentially annex, you know, 20 percent of the country, let, let them do it kind of the argument about, hey, if Mexico invaded the United States and uh, had Mexico had taken over Arizona and Texas and Louisiana, well, let's let them have that if they promise that they won't keep trying to take more. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This war is going on. Loss of life. It is costing a ton of money, including a cost of a lot of U.S. taxpayer money, because we keep sending weapons over there as part of the NATO relief efforts. Um, it is in part, you know, driving up the, the the costs of fuel of food because you've got like blockades stopping um, Ukrainian um, wheat, for example, from from being shipped to the rest of the world. You've got the whole thing going on with uh, Russian oil. So, I mean, should we say? All right, cut a deal, give up 20% of your country, 
make Vladimir Putin happy, give him that diplomatic off-ramp, or is that appeasement? Does that reward the aggressors? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. I love some of our texts. And people are all over the map about this. And I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. There is, I think, a better or worse one. Jeff, I think Henry Kissinger is channeling his inner Neville Chamberlain. Appeasement has never worked against violent dictators. Okay? And I, I don't disagree with that. Jeff, Ukraine needs to negotiate the settlement. They will never win a war against Russia. Never. The only way they've made it this far is on the backs of U.S. taxpayers. This needs to end based on our own problems here. Well, I mean, it's it's not just U.S. taxpayers. I mean, NATO's been supporting them as well. Uh, Jeff, in the U.S.-Mexico War, both sides cut a deal that gave the U.S. western Texas. A couple years later, the U.S. took California and Arizona because they could. Um, Jeff, I think it's a bunch of BS that we're spending billions for what? People like me are getting messed over with gas and food prices. Do you really think anybody cares what Russia does? Well, that's... Uh, I mean, we do live in, I guess my response is, we, we live in a global world. And what Russia does, does in fact, you know, impact the, the rest of the world. That That's one of the things. I think Russia's being shocked with the fact that they're they're actually losing this as far as the economy of Russia is, if not in shambles, it, it's not doing what it should be. They've turned into a pariah. I, I think, you know, Russia, Russia is, in many respects, losing this war. But in losing this war, they are creating just awful humanitarian problems. There's a story I was looking at. They might have been Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. I mean, Russia is sort of resorting to tactics right now that you found in World War One, just indiscriminate bombing and killing of civilians in an attempt to – so what, what they do is they just, like, level – level a community so then they can can move in and the, the civilian consequences are just you know huge I guess the question is do we want to reward that or should we be applauding the fact that even with our assistance and nato assistance you know ukraine is fighting back and and every day this war goes on it weakens russia more and more i mean putin is betting that the west is going to crumble and that there our, our desire for their oil or whatever is going to overwhelm you know our repulsion at the mass graves and everything i don't know that he's made the correct calculation let's talk to bert you're on wtmj good afternoon Good afternoon, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Um, no, I, I don't think Ukraine should stop. I think they need to continue. And I think we need to support Ukraine any way we can, along with the other countries that are doing so. Putin wants his old Soviet Union back. I think he will not stoop to anything. He will do anything to get the land if we just let him do it. I think it's wrong, and I, I he's evil. He needs to be stopped. He, he, and I don't think we should give in yet. He is evil. What if he were to decide that be, because the war is not progressing like he liked, because the economic sanctions are starting to impact on Russia at home, what if that causes Putin to, to escalate and, and maybe start lobbing some missiles into some you know, NATO, NATO you know, partners and things like that? Do we escalate at that point? Mm, that's a hard one. Um you know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what he. I don't know his mindset. I mean, I think he's got some mental health issues too. I mean, I. He's very strange, and he just is so power hungry. He might do that, but I don't know. I just feel like if we let them 
take over those parts that used to be part of the Soviet Union, then he's going to say, okay, now I can go get some more. Just like Hitler kind of went through the whole, you know, the whole countryside taking... I, I don't know. I don't trust him. Not as far as I can throw him. Well, no, thank, thanks, Wilbur. You know, you, you understand why that would be because, I mean, this is, this is exactly that. And I, you know, it's interesting that one of our texters said, you know, they, they're viewing this as, this is kind of like Neville Chamberlain, you know, who of course was the prime minister in Great Britain before Winston Churchill, who thought you could make a deal with Hitler. And, you know, it, and of course we, we all know, you know, how that, that appeasement strategy kind of turned out. I guess I mean I think it's a delicate balancing act, and I mean one of one of the concerns I have with our, our latest thing where we're providing like all these high level missiles and stuff to Ukraine is I think that there have to be controls on this. I, I don't I don't want Ukraine to start um, launching. A, to me, they've got to be defensive weapons. They've got to be weapons that are used to push back the Russians as opposed to, here, we're going to start sending these missiles into Russia and trying to kill Russian civilians and things like that, although I'm sure there is a temptation to do that when you look at what this invasion has done to the country. So I, I think, you know, we we need to, and I think have an obligation, by we I'm saying NATO, and I, the United States is part of NATO, to do everything we can to help the U- Ukraine defend itself from this aggression. And by the way, I think it is in the interest of the free world to, you know, um, watch Russia be diminished. And if nothing else, this idea that Russia had this, you know, invincible army that was just going to storm through and, and take over whatever they wanted, that, that, that myth has been demonstrated to be a lie. So I, I think we have an obligation to help Ukraine defend itself. That is not to support a war that Ukraine launches, like trying to invade Russia or something like that. But I, I don't think this is the point where we can bail. At some point in time, if Vladimir Putin decides that he, he wants to find some sort of off-ramp and you want to find a ceasefire, you'd be silly not to listen to that. If that ceasefire means giving up 20% of your country, that's a lot to ask. All right, we're going to switch gears, something completely and totally different and a little bit lighter than the things we've been talking about over the last two and a half hours. Stick around. Your knees may be showing. I'll explain. We'll discuss. One of the people ask me how the job has changed over the years I've been doing this. And and, and one of the things is, um, obviously, if you're listening to us over the air, we we have an incredible reach. The the signal of WTMJ is just absolutely unbelievable. But as I was saying, when we were down at Biltright on on Saturday morning, I was taking some questions from some of the salespeople and stuff. And one of the, the things that's really been amazing to me is now that we are available on the stream, it has completely and totally expanded our, our audience, our listening audience, to the idea that there, there's a lot of, we have so many regular listeners that I hear from who are listening to us from Florida or Las Vegas or Texas or, or wherever, and they're regular respondents. And a lot of times it's people who are transplanted folks from Wisconsin who are, are trying to keep up with local stuff. And sometimes it's just people who found the programs and they like it. I would say that our our most regular long distance listener that I am aware of, regular daily listener, because I hear from a daily basis, is Alan. Alan listens to us from Wolverhampton, England, and regularly texts. Wolverhampton, England is it's in what they call the West Midlands. So if you can picture England, like London would be in the southeast part of it. Um, this would be kind of the, I don't know, the cent- center west-ish or so. So if if London were like Atlanta, Georgia, 
Um, Wolverhampton would be, I don't know, um, not Wisconsin, but but in that general area. But anyway, so anyhow, um, Alan is a regular listener, and I appreciate that. We talk soccer and things like that. He sends me a note um, that's actually it was kind of clever because we were talking about the whole idea of appeasement, and you know he just he reminded me of you know the the Winston Churchill's famous quotation uh, about appeasement, which is, "Hey, if you're if you're trying to negotiate with a crocodile." All that means is that you're, you're going to get eaten last. And I think that's, you know, one of the, the very valid points to, I think, remember that uh, never try to appease a dictator. If you appease a crocodile, all it is cheese is that you get eaten last. <laughs> so there, that's it. All right. Let us completely and totally switch gears. Just got a couple minutes left. More and more businesses, offices are opening back up to employees. And the expectation is we, we, you know, after two plus years of being able to work remotely, work at home, now we want you to back. All right. Here's, and a lot of employees aren't thrilled about the idea that they, that they have to come back and they have to work in person. Here is the latest battle. All right. Men and women, office setting. And maybe before the pandemic, it was business casual or with suits and ties, you know, for guys and things like that. One of the big questions now is office dress codes and are shorts appropriate for the office? Big story in the Wall Street Journal today. Shorts in the office is now their time. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, there's certain industries where there's never, there, there's never been dress codes. I get to... I, I, I wear blue jeans to work on a, on a regular basis, and when it's warm during the summer, I have been known to wear shorts. Now, if I'm out making public appearances, chances are, you know, no. I, I still kind of dig out the, the suits and things like that for that, if I'm doing public speaking and stuff like that. But in our industry, you should see the way some people come dressed for work. <laughs> that's, just, I mean, that, that's always been the case. But it's radio. You know, you're, you're behind a microphone. It is spoken word. It is theater of the mind. You know, does it, does it matter, you know, whether you're wearing, you know, a T-shirt and shorts or whether you're wearing a three-piece suit? But for the office setting, you know, where typically, like I say, maybe it would be for guys, it would be, you know, khaki pants and, you know, a collared shirt. All right, as you bring them back, shorts. Should the office allow shorts? 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And do you think that, that that imposes, if you do that, does that create an atmosphere that, um, well, it's just too casual, that doesn't respect the business environment? Or, you know, if, if you're working in an office and you're not necessarily going to be interacting with clients or whatever, you're an insurance agency, you know, or you're at a call center or whatever, and you're sitting at a desk and maybe typically, you know, you'd be expected to wear those khakis and the, and the, the collared shirt or, or, or maybe the, you know, the sports shirt or whatever, you know, does it matter if you're wearing shorts or not? And is this, is this modification of dress codes, is that kind of the happy medium between bringing people back to the office and allowing them uh, to work at home? Um, there's, again, a story in the Wall Street Journal that caught my attention about this today. Some bosses see shorts as a sweetener 
for potential new hires in a competitive job market. When you interview somebody and you're just wearing street clothes, I think it's a huge advantage over a law firm that sits there telling these people that they've got to show up at work at 8 a.m. every day with a suit and a tie on. Also, Boss says wearing shorts endears his staff to the clients. It actually comes off being extremely authentic and in some weird way helps build rapport with our clients and our vendors. Huh. I don't see. I'm see. I I grew up in an environment of I mean, before I started working here, I I worked at a law firm or then before that I worked at the U.S. attorney's office. And from my perspective as an attorney, it it wouldn't occur to me. And even to this day, it wouldn't occur to me to go and interact and stuff with clients if I wasn't wearing a suit or at least, uh, you know, a coat and tie, uh, because I think that that's kind of the expectation. But if you're going into, you know, you're going to go in to meet with your financial advisor, for example, and you know, this this is the meeting, and they're going to explain everything that's happened to you know your 401k plan over the last four months, and, and you walk in. And the financial advisors, you know, wearing shorts and uh, you know, and a, and a shirt that looks like he's just getting ready to hit the golf course. How does that? Re- how are you going to react, Jeff? Shorts, absolutely not in an office setting. Maybe for some jobs, but no for the office. Let's see. Um, Rob says, I guess it all depends on what kind of office we're talking about. Doctor's office or lawyer or other professional, I would say shorts would probably not be part of the proper attire. I, I would I would agree. I guess if I'm, I don't know, if, if I'm going to visit the, the doctor and, I mean, I, I understand that it's a little bit more casual. And if the doc's got a lab coat on and blue jeans, that's one thing. If he's, you know, wearing shorts, I'm not sure how I'd view that. Jeff, if you're just working in an office or a cubicle where you don't have clients coming in, I think absolutely shorts could be optional. Jeff, shorts, absolutely not. People should be professional. We have gone from shirt and tie to khakis and polo. Now we go to shorts. Um, yeah, I think that's, well, that's the issue. And is that what employees are going to demand? Jeff, I think it depends on where you work. If it's a traditional office setting, no, I don't think shorts are appropriate. However, I do notice business dress attire is definitely going more casual. I, though, think shorts end up going too far. Um, Jeff, everybody knows men's knees are too distracting to the female employees. Tongue in cheek, of course. Jeff, as a woman, I think you can get away with a tasteful pair of shorts and a nice top. However, you wouldn't catch me doing that because the office is just too blanking cold. Well, you know, you've got that that's out there as well. This, but this is, this is what offices are dealing with now because keep in mind, trying to get people to come back to the office, it is a struggle because lots of people like to work at home. Don't like the idea of having to get up at the morning in the morning and take a shower and get ready and put on, you know, dress, you know, office clothes and, and go to the office. And employers are trying to wrestle with that factor. And you can say, well, then if they don't want to come in, just fire them. Well, then you got to replace them somehow. I, I think more and more offices are moving this way. To me, my answer is shorts in the office. It, it kind of all depends. If you're producing a radio show, okay, that that's fine. No problem with that at all. If you're... I don't know, paralegal in a law firm, that's a whole different story.